Welcome to episode 109 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. So it is 2Q earnings season, and I did share some insights on Twitter about AT&T. They had a bang up second quarter, over 800,000 postpaid ads, profitability looks solid, fiber continues to have tremendous momentum. However, on the other hand, Verizon announced earnings and it's a completely different story, completely different picture. Lower profits, flat revenue, and just 12,000 postpaid phone net additions compared to AT&T had over 800,012. And so it, it, kind of, it kind of begs the question, what is Verizon struggling with? And you, know, you and I have been talking about, they are probably presented with the biggest challenge with respect to deploying 5G, which is gonna drive significant ARPU. There was a bright spot in their earnings. They did report some positive momentum with their fixed wireless access service, but the numbers are paltry in comparison to what T-Mobile was doing. And there were some announcements this week actually with T-Mobile and uh, expanding that footprint into metropolitan areas for their FWA service. So I guess it begs the question, is there trouble in their 5G paradise? But I would love to get your perspective. Yeah, I, honestly, I think um, the, I have a lot of thoughts. I don't think there's enough time for them in this podcast, honestly, because <laughs> right. it'd be an hour long. But it would <laughs> mostly be a rehash of what we've been talking about, which is yeah. Verizon... Verizon's position in mid-band um, and, and their overall coverage and user experience in 5G are just simply inferior right. um, and have been uh, for almost the entirety of you know, their 5G rollout. Um, I think things are getting considerably better for them. Sure. Um, but you know, I recently went on a trip to LA uh, and I took three phones with me, one on each carrier, admittedly not all the same phones. Right. Um, but I actually... Uh, took a uh, mid-band only phone on Verizon just to see what their mid-band coverage looks like. So there's no millimeter wave influence there. Yeah. And, you know, I saw mid-band in more places than I expected, but my expectations were fairly low. Um, but, you know, T-Mobile absolutely crushed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and AT&T was, was, I would say, not even that great in terms of speeds, but yeah. the consistency on AT&T was much better. So I, I think when you look at, what users expect from their carriers. Um, I think while high speeds are always good and coverage are important, I think consistency is really what's helping AT&T here. Um, Because, you know, I'm sure people are tempted to go to T-Mobile from AT&T, but they also probably don't have that much of a uh, negative experience in terms of coverage and speeds to feel like they have to go. And realistically, you know, AT&T, I think relevant to this, uh, when they announced their earnings, they said that their that their their midband rollout is also accelerating faster yeah. than they expected, and that they'll have a hundred million pops this year instead of seventy million. So, um, I think AT and T will ramp and will continue to ramp next year. Um, and I think by the end of next year, we'll have a very good idea of where everybody sits in terms of their five G coverage and overall five G experience. Because I think by then both Verizon and AT&T will have had enough time to fully, um, you know, build out the majority of their networks. Um, you know, there will still be lots of 
fills to hole, holes to fill. Yeah. <laughs> fills to um, but um, I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, th- this is going to be a multi-year effort and there's going to be lots more things to do. And uh, unfortunately, this is kind of a, a, a clear indication that Verizon is very much behind because um, these are kind of a trailing indicator, right? You know, yeah. um, net ads are usually something that trails the user experience and um, right. it kind of validates what we've been saying over the last six to 12 months about Verizon's 5G network. Yeah, you know, they, you know, and you and I have been speaking to this for quite some time, so we'll take our victory lap on it. Um, they're definitely in, in last place with respect to getting this rolled out. And your, your insights on mid-band spectrum are dead on. I think from my perspective, AT&T has a slight advantage, not a slight advantage, but a, a, a pretty decent advantage over Verizon and mid-band um, just because they didn't have as much gap fill and they were pretty smart about um, their 110 auction spectrum acquisition as well, um, which provides good mid-band coverage at a very um, um, you know, compelling price point relative to what C-band you know, rung in at. So yeah, we'll, you know, again, we'll continue to, to monitor this, this 5G race between um, all the big tier ones and you know, DISH, you know, <laughs> Their next, uh, you know, I believe goal or uh, that's set by the FCC is to hit to a, you know, a certain coverage area by, by mid next year. And so that'll be interesting to track as well. But let's move to your first topic this week. And you want to talk about Samsung. Um, they signed a deal with Mediacom um, and this is focused on a, a CBRS spectrum uh, powered FWA deployment. Yeah, so Mediacom's an operator and they will be deploying Samsung's CBRS uh, wireless networking solutions for 5G FWA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these are um, basically designed to reach approximately 1.5 million households and businesses across 22 states. Um, So Mediacom is not necessarily the biggest of carriers, but they are a carrier um, and they do have lots of customers. Um, and, and really what this comes down to is um, they, they're kind of validating Samsung's strategy with how they're deploying CBRS. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting because FWA obviously creates another opportunity for a carrier to uh, deepen their relationship with customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Mediacom is definitely one of the more rural-like carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, so... If this is kind of just a you know validation that Samsung isn't just winning um, their 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 business with the larger carriers, yeah, um, and that you know MediaCom's you know FWA service, which is very similar to what a lot of other carriers are offering, um, maybe at a lower um, you know lower rate because it's 60, 60 bucks a month, which is still about what what others are charging. Yeah. But they're currently only offering 25 down, three up um, with a 400 gig monthly cap. Yeah. Um, so it's not ideal, but I have a feeling that with CBRS, um, this could considerably increase those speeds and give people access to much faster internet, hopefully at the same price. So uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's great that Samsung is, is a part of this solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that Samsung has offered a, a good um product for this kind of market, but also just, you know, being a very competitive 
third player in the market, which, you know, I think Huawei was to a degree, um, but I think there was a lot of um, questions about the the state of Huawei's hardware and whether or not, you know, it was reliable for for a lot of reasons. Um, It was well-priced and the performance was there, but uh, a lot of people questioned its, you know, validity and you know there i just saw an article literally over the wire today that talked about how um you know the u.s government was getting concerned about huawei's um infrastructure deployments in these kinds of you know rural areas because they're very close to military bases that's actually why the the whole rural carrier thing is actually a big deal because they're concerned that you know huawei switches and huawei routers were way too close or even feeding into u.s military bases yeah, no, that, you know, I'm going to touch on this in my second topic, but I've got a few kind of few observations here. So, yeah, you know, I just spent time with Samsung Networks. They had an analyst day in Dallas last week, and I continue to be impressed with the momentum that they're building. You know, one thing to bear in mind, if, if our viewers and listeners aren't aware of this, is that traditionally Samsung Networks was, was fairly weak in the RAN space. Um, obviously, Ericsson and Nokia really rule the roost there for obvious reasons. They've got bulletproof uh, gear, but um, building upon, you know, kind of the momentum around open RAN, which drives a domesticated supply chain, getting back to your, your point on rural America and, you know, the rip and replace of Chinese infrastructure, but they're also leaning into CBRS. And when you look at, you know, what's interesting about Samsung is obviously they're producing infrastructure, but they're producing, you know, world-class, you know, Android phones as well. They've had CBRS support on handsets for quite some time. This is a natural evolution. And actually what I would expect with CBRS because that that license spectrum is actually less costly and you've got different license um, scenarios. You can go through general access or PAL. Um, I would expect that those FWA services over time, not only to your point, would would improve in performance, but actually decrease in um, overall subscriber um, you know, payment. And, you know, T-Mobile has been very aggressive. I think they've got, uh, what, a $50, um, you know, plan out there. And so I, I expect to see this, um, you know, certainly mature over time. But um, I totally agree with you, you know, spot on. Samsung Networks has really started with Verizon with their mobile 5G deployment. They've really come a long way in the last, you know, few years to cement themselves as a solid, you know, third, position infrastructure provider. But this plays into a, a great segue for my second topic this week. And I want to talk about the uh, the 5G fund. And you and I have talked about this on prior podcasts. So this is a federal fund that's been set aside, uh, initially earmarked with $9 billion uh, to assist in bridging the digital divide and helping these rural carriers get 5G deployed. And it's chicken and egg. So you know, the average deployment cost for a mobile network, um, you know, deploying 5G new radio is 20 to 25 billion. Uh, that's just the, the infrastructure. That is public record from, from AT&T and Verizon. So the question becomes, is, is, is it a realistic ask for the rural carriers to ask the federal government for more? And, and I do believe it is just, you know, based on that stat that I just shared. And, and actually they have come back and, <laughs> Um, they've recommended, well, you know, we think about 36 billion might, might actually do the job. And, you know, from my perspective, um, that's very realistic. And one of the things you have to you bear in mind with rural deployment 
the way that operators are able to recoup their investment, obviously, is with subscribership. And the tier ones operate in very highly dense urban uh, metropolitan areas, and they can recoup that, that investment you know, much more quickly. In rural America, I mean, I think you're going to have a lot of opportunity to connect 5G to, to agricultural sensors and that sort of thing uh, to improve crop yields and, and ranching and, and serving and that sort of thing. But when you look at the subscriber uh, density in rural, it's not there. And so that payback could be two, three, four X longer. So there definitely needs to be, um, you know, from my perspective, some, some government subsidy to help rural America and help these carriers like US Cellular and, and you know, Mediacom that you're talking about earlier. Um, I don't know if the federal government needs to foot the entire bill, but it seems to me that that number is a lot bigger than 9 billion, but I bet you have a ton of insight on this topic. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the issue is that this is not something that the operators chose to do. Um, this is a mandate from the government. Um, and I think if the government wants to mandate something, it needs to be funded, um, not underfunded. Um, so I think uh, an independent study of what this actually will cost would be the most appropriate um, because it sounds like the government is undercutting and the yeah. carriers are maybe overshooting a little bit. Yeah. Um, but there's I think that, both of that going on for sure. Right. So I think I think there's probably something like, you know, the, the rule of 80 percent where like it maybe you don't give the carriers 100 percent of what they're asking for because it's probably unreasonable and they're probably asking for every everything to be paid for. Yeah. Um, and the government is probably, you know, underestimating what what it actually costs because they don't want to have to ask for thirty six billion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, I think this is a this is a mandate. Um, there are lots of benefits to making this happen other than security. Um, and I think the, the best thing to do, in my opinion, would be if you're going to if the government is going to um, up the funding, they could also also up the, the requirements. You know, like if we pay for this rip and replace to the degree you're asking for, well, we're going to ask for more than just, you know, rip and replace we're going to ask for for service guarantees or covered guarantees or something because um i just think there needs to be more gained out of this than just replacing the hardware if if they want a, you know 100 percent of their costs covered yeah no i agree and it's i think it's important to note that um and actually this was um an enterprise uh, actually it was a light reading article our buddy mike dana wrote it um Three billion is allocated for for the rip and replace of, of Chinese infrastructure. So my understanding is that is incremental to the nine billion. But I think you and I have talked about uh, that funding is is probably you know it's it's nowhere nearly adequate, given given the uh, the deployment of Chinese infrastructure in rural America, because to your point, um, it was much more cost effective than than comparable solutions from like Nokia and Ericsson. I mean. I, you know, I heard stories, you know, and I won't, I won't mention, you know, either one of those um, European companies, but, uh, you know, some of these tenders, I mean, it, it was, it was unbelievable. It was, you know, th there was no profit <laughs> in that. And so clearly Huawei was, was buying that to establish a foothold. 
And, you know, your insights are dead on, you know, in, in rural America, a, a lot of, you know, this telecommunications infrastructure is close to, you know, critical infrastructure tied to the military. And um, so anyway, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, but certainly, you know, I think that nine, that nine billion needs to be lifted. The, uh, the, the final amount, who knows? Um, the other thing I'll mention too is I, I think, again, I'm, I'm gonna get on my soapbox again. I think the FCC needs to figure out a way to keep these, um, these, these, these spectrum auctions, you know, from spiraling out of control and, you know, turning into these $80 billion behemoths because that's a tax on the carriers as well. You know, and it's not fair to a Verizon to spend 40 some odd billion. And then the federal government is turning around and, you know, subsidizing rural carriers just because their footprints in rural. So anyway, um, I could go all, all day about that, but let's yeah. go to your second topic this week. And you want to talk about Singtel and they've gone pretty close to meeting um, a pretty uh, impressive standalone um, coverage goal. Yeah, so Singtel said um, that back, uh, they've been basically building their 5G network. Uh, Singtel is the uh, primary carrier in Singapore. Um, and they have, they actually rolled out um, their standalone network in May of 2021. So they're one of the first in the world. Yeah. Um, but they're claiming that they have 95% of their nationwide coverage, which for those of you who are not aware of the size of Singapore, um, I like to call it a, a city state. It um, is. Because it's effectively a, a city that also happens to be a country mm -hmm. um, that, that resides within um, Malaysia. Um, so it's, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, hard to achieve nationwide um, standalone coverage, but it is still an achievement. Um, and I'm fairly sure even if we were to look at all the cities around the world, 95% of 95% of them are not covered by standalone. Yeah. So this is still quite an achievement. Um, but Singtel is definitely one of the, you know, leading operators in the world in terms of de deploying new technologies. Um, they've always kind of been on the forefront of everything. So this doesn't really come as much of a surprise. Um, but they did say that their, their standalone network covers 1300 outdoor locations and 400 buildings across Singapore, um, which is really, you know, impressive. Mm -hmm. And that they have, um, you know, lots of test beds being built with the government, you know, that's one of the things that's really cool about Singapore is, you know, the public private partnerships are very close. Um, there's lots of research that goes on in there. Um, lots of interesting things come out of Singapore as a result of that. Um, and they said that they have, they're doing 15 different live trials with standalone 5G. Um, I expect to have 30 um, by the first half of 2023. So they're doing lots of interesting stuff with this network and yeah. using it as a test bed um, to enable new use cases. Um, they're currently using uh, 3.5 gigahertz, which is you know, a globally harmonized band. Mm -hmm. um, and they are also using 2.1 gigahertz as well. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see what you know this you know network uh, is is going to be able to achieve. And what's interesting is it's actually a, an Ericsson network. Um, so it's got you know it's cloud native. It's got dual mode 5G core, um, and it's it's going to be something that I would love to be able to benchmark and test and see what they're you know. I'm kind of curious to see that they haven't really talked about um, what latency are, what latency numbers are like. 
um, with their standalone network, but I have a feeling that um, they're probably a lot better than the, what they were before this network launched. So um, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how those how, how Singtel's performance looks in the near future with with all this spectrum and and standalone. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the size of Singapore. You know, I've, I've visited several times over the years and it's, uh, it, is, it is a nation, city, state, all wrapped into one. Um, I believe it's about the size of San Francisco. It's, you know, it's, it's maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating that to a point, but, um, you know, it's not really mountainous based on my recollection. And so I, I think it's fairly easy to get there, but um, Singapore is also considered a financial center uh, in Asia as well. And so I think um, a lot of the 5G use cases will be really, really interesting sort of coming out of these test beds that you're, that you're talking about. Um, and I also, I, I love the tiger beer. So <laughs> every time I visit, I have to have a tiger beer. But uh, let's move to my third and final topic this week. And I want to talk about the Frankfurt Airport. And they're planning to deploy the largest private 5G campus network um, in Europe. And this will rival, I believe it's Hanover Messi that, that has uh, staked that claim. Um, I think I've spoken about that deployment with Encigo in the past, but um, the Frankfurt Airport is actually working with NTT. And, you know, NTT is, you know, they're, they're, their momentum is building around private. I think I've mentioned in the past that um, they have a, an investment interest in Salona, which is the Pride G as a service um, um, solution that I've spoken to. Um, on other other podcasts as well, but you know, my the question that kind of comes to my mind is like, so what would be some of the expected business outcomes from from deploying a, a private five G network? And so, there are plans once it's deployed that there's going to be a model where other other businesses, because you know, an airport is like an ecosystem, and you have catering, you have restaurants, you have bars, you have you have hotel adjacencies and those sorts of things. So. Longer term, um, there'll be some sort of opportunity for, you know, for these other entities that are in the, the sort of the airport ecosystem to, to leverage it. But initially <clears throat> they're deploying 3.7 to 3.8 gigahertz. And they're gonna use that for a number of different use cases, which include um, autonomous uh, vehicle um, driving on what they call the apron, which is the tarmac, um, you know, um, you know, automating uh, kind of, you know, refueling, you know, scenarios, video-based monitoring of, uh, of airport facilities, using drones as well, which requires really low latency. So um, this could be really a, a great use case and showcase for, for the airport of the future. But what do you think? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I've actually been talking to uh, Boingo and some others around, you know, airports and five, private 5G networks. So I think it's really interesting because uh, there are lots of opportunities at airports to do compelling things. I think the number one is actually like just deploying millimeter wave everywhere yeah. um, because it's not going to interfere with 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 plane um, traffic um, and and it's not going to interfere with any of like the critical infrastructure that planes use. And yeah. it enables really fast downloads of content, which is really beneficial for. Netflix, music, being able to just like get your content before you hop on the plane. Right. And then also for, for, for the planes themselves to both download and upload the data that's on those planes. Um, yeah, and you have if, logs, you have pilot logs that have to be transferred, I believe, to the airport. And 
actually, this was a, an early WiMAX use case. Of, if our viewers and listeners remember what WiMAX was, it was it was FWA, but it was you know it was kind of you know kind of half baked from from my perspective. But yeah, there are a lot of uses. I mean, it's a good point with millimeter wave to get that really really fast. Um, throughput speed for for download and i just recently was uh at um midway which is not necessarily known as a very forward-thinking airport but you know at millimeter wave there was doing a gig per second um and it kind of blew away my eight my t-mobile and verizon phones um because it, millimeter wave was working and you know i'm sure other people were using it and had no idea that they were you know accessing this much faster band yeah. Um, and I think just when you look at just when you're in a congested area like that, having just millimeter wave 5G alone, I think will drastically improve the experience because in a lot of airports today, signal is bad, um, throughput is bad, yeah. and it's just a it's an, not a great experience. And when you're able to actually experience 5G to its you know greatest benefit, and with that kind of user density, it's, it's very easy to justify. Yeah, I'm I'm waiting for Boingo to really improve their service. You know, I, I I hate to mean tweet on them, but I do that often. I'll also provide another insight to our viewers and listeners. I have found that Midway has the cheapest draft beer, so um, <laughs> put, that, put that in your pocketbook there. But uh, hey, buddy, let's move to your third topic, and you want to talk about Crown Castle, and I, I caught some of this news towards the tail end of the week too. Um, so I saw the Crown Castle news. It's interesting because a lot of people don't really understand outside of our industry how large Crown Castle really is. Yeah. Um, but they have tens of thousands of, of cell sites. Um, and if you're talking if you're talking about adding the um, small cells to that, they're in the over hundred thousand. They said that they expect to double their small cell deployments in 2023. Um, so this year they expect to deploy 5,000 small cells, but next year they expect to deploy 10,000, um, which is a doubling of that. Um, and I think part of that is also the fact that they have commitments to deploy small cells uh, with some of their, um, you know, existing customers. So they currently own and operate at least more than 40,000 cell towers and they have approximately 85,000 route miles of fiber. So they have a very robust network in place, but they have an agreement that they signed with um, T-Mobile earlier this year, which I think we covered, yeah. um, that they would have a 12-year agreement with T-Mobile to build out a uh, their network to increase coverage with, with, small, with Crown Castle's towers and small cell locations, mm -hmm. which includes access to 35,000 small cell sites. So um, that's that's probably a big part of that that deployment and, and expansion. And it's very interesting because, um, you know, T-Mobile, new T-Mobile that exists today is already kind of a conglomerate or a, a, an aggregation of Sprint and T-Mobile's networks, yeah. which together are, were by far the most um, dense. And even with the divestment and shutdown of sites, I think they still have the most cell sites. So um, it's going to be interesting to see where they use these and how they use them. I have a feeling a lot of those small cells might end up being um, C-band um, in the three, you know, because they have that higher end of the the three point not three point seven three point nine band. Yep. So I think that'll probably be a place where they use it a lot. Yep. Um, and then also just I think filling in two point five in places where 
um, it might not be able to reach based on their current macro site. So um, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how Crown Castle's network grows, but uh, this will put them, you know, well over 120,000 small cells across the country. Yeah. You know, and we, yeah, you made a spot on point about um, kind of the, the nature of C-band and the requirement for, for densification. We've talked about that numerous times on, on our podcast series over the years. And I mean, this is something that Verizon really needs to, to jump on and take advantage of too, because if you look at, of all three of the, the tier one carriers, Verizon by far is deploying the most C-band spectrum. Um, you know, AT&T second with some 110 sprinkled in, and then certainly T-Mobile just sort of filled in, you know, um, their gaps there because they had such an impressive um, overall footprint with, with the Sprint acquisition. But yeah, you know, it's interesting. A lot of folks outside of our industry don't understand, you know, Crown Castle and just their, their reach and how, you know, critical they are um, from providing, you know, that necessary real estate on, you know, on towers and, and that sort of thing. But hey, it's been another great podcast. We probably went a little longer than 20 minutes, but why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whale Town Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.